0: Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers
1: behind the latest major headlines in science. My name is Charlie. And I'm James. Do you ever hear about science in the news and wonder, isn't there more to the research behind these articles? Well, every Thursday, Charlie and I go to the actual research papers behind these stories so that we can open up the beautiful work behind these discoveries, as well as to cut through misinformation in the media.
0: James, today I have an episode all about the moon. So there's been tons of news lately about the moon, like Jeff Bezos wants to go build a retirement home there, and Trump is sending a, sending a bunch of astronauts there. Uh, so I figured I'd bring in some cool moon science that's also been popping up in the news, and we can talk about moon quakes and some uh, interesting fault lines that showed up on the moon
1: over the last several million years. Well, that's awesome, Charlie. I've been noticing this influx of moon stories uh, with all the ones you mentioned, as well as I think Israel had a failed moon landing that returned back some pretty awesome shots still. Still like a big citizen's space success, I guess. So I'm excited. I have tons of questions for you. And hopefully if you're listening, you do too. James and I are both PhD students. And in the course of our research, we read tons of papers.
0: So we thought that we would share our love for science with anyone else who wants to learn about discoveries that
1: affect us all. We are the paper boys. All right, folks, before we get started, we just want to say thank you for listening. Is this Is our 40th episode? Uh, this is our 39th episode. Oh, okay. Next week, though. This podcast wouldn't exist without the listeners, so we're very thankful to everyone who listens, gives us feedback, and chimes in. Also, if you aren't already, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle is at PaperboysPod. You can stay up to date on the latest episodes and content, as well as ask us any questions if they come up about the episodes Or send us your favorite paper recommendations. All right, Charlie. So there have been a lot of articles about the moon recently, but how did you find this specific paper that you were looking at?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the
1: reason I kind of
0: was interested in moon science in the first place was that so much has been in the news. I mean, just this week, I've seen, I think every day I've seen at least one article. So I guess pretty soon they're going to be looking at these samples that were taken from the Apollo missions. They have like a whole store of them down at Johnson Space Center that they're preparing for more investigations. That was one of the things I've seen. And then obviously, I'm sure we all saw the news that Jeff Bezos announced Blue Origin is going to be sending a human mission to the
1: moon by, I think, 2024, he said. Wow. I mean, probably sounds far away, but uh, like space is really hard. Designing things for space. I don't think I've ever heard of a space program being on time. No, I mean, that's only five
0: years away. Like if Jeff Bezos told me that he was going to have Amazon fresh in most cities in America in five years, I wouldn't believe that, let alone sending people to the moon.
1: Yeah. What was the time difference between when they got like John Glenn into space and then Apollo? Was John Glenn like 62? Yeah, that must
0: have been early 60s. And then Apollo 11 was 1969. And they had a lot more money back then yeah but they also had a lot fewer rockets so (laughs)
1: yeah that's true but i mean mean, to put this into perspective blue origin hasn't even been to orbit yet yeah they haven't even sent people up they haven't sent anybody up in space like not even close that's a lot of work i mean like yeah it's it's a bold claim the other claim obviously is
0: that nasa has recently said they're sending humans back to the moon by 2024 so i think jim bridenstein the administrator of nasa just announced the name of the next human mission to the moon, which is Artemis, which I guess is, in Greek mythology, that's the twin sister of Apollo, so it's a very fitting name, and it's a female goddess, and I think a big focus is that they're going to send a female astronaut to the moon for the first time, so that was another big thing that was announced this week.
1: That's awesome. Maybe NASA will end up partnering with Amazon. Maybe that's Bezos' incentive for announcing this. I I have a feeling that that's the case, because
0: as far as I know, the... NASA lunar concept doesn't really have a lander and I think that part of this announcement about the Artemis naming and all of that was that they're seeking commercial contractors to build the landing portion of it. So NASA's working on the SLS rocket which will take us to the moon and then I think the lunar gateway which is essentially like a space station that will be orbiting the moon where they can do kind of refueling and supply runs and that kind of stuff. But then they need something to get them from the gateway to the surface of the moon and back and so i i hope that that's what blue origins play is here
1: it'll be fascinating It'll be especially to see if other private companies get into it as well like i know sierra nevada corporation before was building what was it the dreamliner or is that the boeing plane the star chaser i think starliner yeah, yeah starliner or so, so they all have such similar names starliner might
0: even be what spacex's ship is now called <laughs> oh okay yeah. I know what you're talking about, though. It was like a kind of like a shuttle concept.
1: Yeah. It was a really cool, really cool design. And dream
0: chaser. Is that dream it? Dream
1: chaser. That's the one. Yeah. Chase your dreams to the stars, something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see who follows Sweet, like whether SpaceX comes up with a lunar lander too. You know, they've talked about trying to land something on Mars. Maybe the moon's a good test ground before you go all the way to the Mars. Who knows? Yeah, I mean I think that that's what NASA's kind of plan
0: is with this is they, I mean they call this whole architecture there like Moon to Mars mission or whatever I mean Moon to Mars something. You just see all the posters and stuff
1: of Moon to Mars. So, well and so in the news also like we mentioned just briefly um it looked like there was a civilian funded mission to the moon recently too from Israel. Did you find anything about that? Yeah. So I think that was
0: last month. They attempted to land. It was would have been the first private landing on the moon ever. And it was actually, I think, only the sixth or seventh entity to ever orbit the moon. And it wow. was um, this this Israeli company with their lander called Beresheet. I don't know if I'm even saying that right. But on their descent, there was some problem, which was recently, again, th- just this week announced what happened. They sent some command to upload some new software or something because they noticed a problem going on with one of their systems on board and then it caused a chain reaction that eventually made it so that the engine that they were going to use for the landing shut off oh man you know a couple hundred meters off the surface or a couple hundred kilometers maybe
1: dang that's sad i know that was a huge huge time and money sink for them i mean they they were very excited about it but it took like Twice as long, $100, $100 million more dollars than they expected. And to have like a software anomaly like that, it's pretty heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. And I think that that was actually the result of like the Google's X Prize or Lunar X Prize, something like that, mm-hmm. where Google actually put forth like a, a reward for the first private industry to land on the moon. And I remember when that came out like five or 10 years ago, I was thinking like, this is silly. Who's ever going to do that? And then this, this team got so close, Google actually gave them the million dollars, which, you know, is just a token at that point. You've already sunk 100 million into it. but Wow, Google actually honored it? I think they did because, you know, they got so close and they orbited the moon. And wow. they were the, I think the first private company to ever do that. So, I mean, as far as like anyone's concerned, they, they basically achieved the goal, right?
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I had heard that like Google canceled it a while back and like they still decided to go forward because they made so much progress but it's nice to see you don't usually see that with big corporations honor i know yeah but i mean they could they can spare an
0: extra million they probably got way more in publicity just just from spending it yeah and i think this company is um gonna be like they're already working to build a new a new version of it that they're gonna send back as soon as they can so
1: that's awesome i mean they've already done a lot of the hard work if they got this far and have that much technology like um, right and probably with the lessons that they learned they can only make it better so that'd be great right. to see. like the second time around i would
0: be surprised if they didn't do it successfully
1: yeah yeah well so uh we could talk about interesting missions to the moon all day but i am curious to hear more about this paper that you brought in about moonquakes. uh you want to tell us a little bit about where it's coming from and what it's about yeah so this one again this was a paper that came out just this week so
0: like I mean, it's kind of crazy how much moon stuff has been happening in just the past week. This was on Monday, May 13th. I saw some headlines. Uh, One is from Fox News. It says, Space Stunner. Moon is shrinking. Shocking study reveals. And then National Geographic says, the moon may be tectonically active and geologists are shaken. (laughs) Got to appreciate the (laughs) pun. I know. It's so corny. And then Space.com says, moonquakes rattle the moon as it shrinks like a raisin. So I got pretty intrigued just because, um, you know, like we've said, there's been so much about the moon lately and it's kind of like an interesting question of why do we even really care about going back to the moon? Don't we already know lots about the moon? And even if we don't, why would we want to learn more? So I kind of felt very intrigued to be like, all right, what actually is like current science on the moon? Yeah. What are what are scientists doing? What do they care about? What could
1: we do better if we went back and learned more? That's it's a really good point. I've heard... Actually people have come up and asked me like in debates. Not like debates, but just talking with people like why public are public figure, so much?
0: James, you should be expected to answer these questions for folks.
1: they they come up to me and they're like, as co-host of the Paper Boys podcast no one has ever <laughs> yeah. actually said that to me. But um <laughs> but I, I have like had some discussions with people and uh people who are like, Why do we spend so much money on this? Like going to the moon is very expensive. So I think it's I think it's a really important question to ask like What do we actually gain by going to the moon and studying it? Yeah, I mean, the expense is
0: definitely a big reason why it needs to be justified. Actually, I think that part of uh, Jim Bridenstine's whole talk and announcement earlier this week was that Trump and NASA have put in a request for an additional $1.6 billion specifically to meet the 2024 deadline of going to the moon. And that's a lot of money. Like, you, you need a good justification to ask for something like that, you know? Yeah. So this journal paper... That all these headlines were spawned from uh, was actually published in Nature Geoscience Journal. And like I said, it came out just this past Monday, May 13th, and it's called Shallow Seismic Activity and Young Thrust Faults on the Moon. The first author is a guy named Thomas R. Waters from the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies at the Smithsonian. And then there were several more authors from NASA, Wheaton College, University of Maryland, University of British Columbia, and the planetary science institute in tucson arizona and i think that what spurned this paper was have you heard of um, the lunar reconnaissance orbiter before
1: yeah yeah it's a satellite that was sent to i mean do reconnaissance about the moon but i mean it's constantly orbiting the moon i think it was doing several different things it was mapping the lunar surface from pole to pole and then i think it had some other like atmospheric instruments as well right yeah, and
0: it also had I think it had a, like a very high resolution camera that did imaging of the surface, which actually go check out our Twitter, shameless plug here at Paperboys Pod. Posted a really cool picture that LRO took of the surface that like I legitimately thought was fake when I really? first saw it. It's, yeah, it's so cool. So I mean, the camera on this thing is really impressive and the imaging that it did is kind of what motivated this study because they took all these high-res images of the surface that showed these things called lobate fault scarps, which are basically just, I mean, you think of like when an earthquake happens, I don't know much about geology, but I think that as the ground has like stress and is pushing against itself and getting pulled against itself, it can like split and create these little cliffs essentially think of like i mean i think that that's how some of these tsunamis happen when there's an earthquake underwater because the earth literally like splits like some of it goes up and some of it goes down and that sudden movement creates a huge thrust of water
1: oh okay so these scarps are actually present on the lunar surface like we can see them
0: yeah so that's what the lro found was dozens and dozens of these um thrust faults is what they call them wow and yeah and and what these usually tell you is that there is seismic activity going on which is not news we actually already knew that the moon had seismic
1: activity they literally call them moon quakes which i think is really cool how long have we known that for did you get a sense of that like was it were we able to detect that before apollo or has it only been since we were on the moon actually like in situ able to measurement measure it
0: that is a good question I don't know how much they knew about moonquakes before Apollo, but they must have known something because Apollo 12, 14, 15 and 16 all put down seismometers, which are like it's a device that you use to actually detect, I would say earthquakes, but in this case, moonquakes. (laughs) So they must have known something. I mean, they they
1: wanted to go and they knew enough to develop these expensive instruments to put them up there. Right, right. They're actually really cool photos of Apollo. The astronauts deploying these I was checking out earlier today. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It just looks like so much fun being on the moon, like deploying these seismometers. Way more fun than doing it on Earth.
0: Yeah. That would have been so cool. Isn't that also the same instrument that
1: the InSight lander deployed on Mars, a seismometer? Yeah. I think that like that's the main payload of InSight. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. So they were able to map these SCARPS then. SCARPS, right? Yeah. SCARPS is the right word. And then what does that tell us, though? Like, I mean, there's no wind and erosion on the moon that could have caused them. No, but they do have ways to sort of like age them. So when these
0: faults happen, they will expose rock that's beneath the surface. And I guess when rock is, when this rock is on the lunar surface, over time, it gets worn down by space weather and gets darker. So rock that's been more recently exposed will be lighter. I mean and when you look at a picture of the lunar surface like you can see it's not one color it's well it's one color but it's not one like shade. They all have different you know there's all these different albedos all over the all over the place.
1: Oh, that's cool. So I saw yeah, so I just saw some pictures of the moon and it's neat you can actually see the soils like lighter around different impact craters and stuff. Yeah. It's not just a uniform color. And I was wondering why it's white if that was just an artifact of the image processing. But no, I guess it's just fresher lunar soil. Yeah, it's
0: stuff that's been kind of like dredged up for some reason. And so by looking at stuff like that, and there was a couple other techniques that they use, but they can sort of age these different areas on the moon, like how how long ago these faults happened. And in this case, the ones that this LRO imaged all over the moon, they determined that they're less than 50 million years old, which sounds really old. But considering the moon is 4.6 billion years old. That means that this is happening on like, I mean, on a geological time scale. That's now. That's like current. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's more recent than the dinosaurs. Yeah,
1: that's true. The dinosaurs didn't get to see all these thrust faults, those poor things. (laughs) Poor guys. (laughs) So it sounds like they've gotten images of the scarps and then they have the seismic data. But in this paper, what do they actually talk about as their methods for determining the moon is still geologically active?
0: Yeah. So they kind of like walk through this data that came from those seismometers on the Apollo mission. So it's called the Apollo Seismic Network. And like I said, it was four seismometers that were active from 1969 to 1977. And so this is like an old data set. So they didn't really collect anything new. Well, they collected the data from the LRO. But I think even that
1: was from like 2010 or... Real quick question. With the seismometers... Do you know, were those just like beaming data down to Earth or was it like they deployed them with the Apollo mission and then they just got the data on the capsule and brought it back?
0: So I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm looking at some pictures of the seismometers here and it looks like they have like a big antenna sticking off of it. And also like there aren't moonquakes going on necessarily while the astronauts are walking around on the surface. Like that would be a really lucky thing to happen. Or unlucky, I guess, for the astronauts. But yeah. <laughs> so I think that they must have been beaming data down and they had like kind of a continuous continuous data set, quote unquote, for those eight years. But you know, like okay. I said, it'd be unlucky for the astronauts. But I think the actual magnitude of these moonquakes that happened was, it would have been equivalent to like between a magnitude 2 and 5.5 here on Earth. So they weren't like anything extreme, but you know, enough for these sensitive seismometers to pick them up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the magnitude 5.5 is like... Nothing compared to a rocket launch. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's cool. Yeah. And so over that time, they recorded, I think, like
0: 28 shallow moonquakes. And when they say shallow, they're talking about anywhere from like it happened on the surface to it happened like, you know, 200 kilometers deep or something. Okay. But the problem is that they actually have a really hard time estimating how deep they actually are. So basically, you know, kind of walking it back a little bit. The motivation here is that this data, while there's a lot of it, it's not very accurate because they have like a very small network. I mean, on Earth, they can put seismometers anywhere and they can kind of put them everywhere and triangulate the epicenter perfectly because they've got a thousand different sensors at a thousand different locations. But on the moon, they had four that were only operating for eight years. And so it's really hard for them to actually pinpoint where is the epicenter of this earthquake and then therefore extrapolate anything about what.
1: Sort of surface features could that have caused? Okay. Yeah, that sounds challenging. And I mean, the state of technology back then, I mean, it's been 50 years since that was developed. Yeah. And so it is really interesting for them to dig up this really old data and do this.
0: So I think what they were setting out to do here is can they combine their knowledge of these thrust faults with this old data to essentially draw a correlation between them and say that these thrust faults are definitively caused by moonquakes? therefore
1: proving that the moon is still tectonically active. Okay, I'm just processing that. So they're digging up the old data, matching it with LRO's images, and then trying to make some geological conclusion. That seems hard with like a sparse sampling of only four data points for the entire moon. Did they give any insight in the paper to like how they were confident in that? It seems like your error bounds would be huge if you try to make any conclusion from such a small data set.
0: Yeah, they did actually. They developed this new algorithm that like specifically was adapted for inaccurate data from sparse seismic networks. And really, you know, I, I won't even pretend to know like how they did that, but it must be something that is used here on Earth that they, you know, took a very small data set to help kind of train it or or modify it, whatever, so that it's reliable. And I think the way that they used to try to find the epicenters from this data is they would do some sort of like best fit analysis and then they would identify one point that meant this is the best fit to the data. But what this algorithm does instead is it generates almost like a probability cloud where I think like it it tests like how accurate it would be if the epicenter was here, and then it tests how accurate would it be if it was here, and they kind of do a whole like smattering of possible locations. And then they generate a group of points that could be the possible
1: epicenter for a given moonquake data set. Okay. so it's like they've built up a model basically of like the lunar surface and its soil that you could sort of like imagine like playing around with like you hit it with a hammer here and it vibrates and goes to this point. So they could basically do like a big random simulation where it's like, what if you hit it here or here in different locations and then see what matches the actual recordings that they have?
0: Yeah, I think that's how it works. And, you know, my very limited understanding of earthquakes and moonquakes is that they have, there's these very characteristic types of oscillations. Like I think they call them P waves and S waves, and there might be other types of waves, but, and they occur, you know, like based on the depth of the epicenter of the earthquake, like they could occur in different ways. And so, yeah, I think they combine their measurements of those waves and where they propagated and when they propagated. And at which locations they propagated, and then they can, yeah, walk that data backwards to find okay. the epicenter. Cool. And so I mentioned that there were twenty-eight moonquakes that they were looking at, and with their new method, they confirmed the locations of thirteen of those moonquakes. So their new data, the probability cloud of epicenters matched where the original best-fit epicenter was. And then with seven of the moonquakes, they found these probability clouds that suggested one of two epicenter locations and neither of those matched up with the original epicenter so they kind of relocated where these moonquakes actually happened which kind of like nullifies the old estimation from this data
1: oh wow so if i understood that correctly then based on their modeling uh and this algorithm they developed with the old apollo data they were able to come up with a statistically better estimate of where the epicenter is for these moonquakes, right? Yeah, exactly. For, okay. for seven of them.
0: For 13 of them, they were the same. And then the remaining eight, they weren't really
1: able to get anything meaningful out of them because the data was, was not good enough. Oh, okay. Bummer. Well, so what are the implications of this? The fact, I mean, that has got to help our understanding of the moon in general, but... Yeah, the reason why they
0: wanted the to know where the epicenters were was so they could then correlate them to these thrust faults. So they ended up finding that 17 of these relocated epicenters were uh, on the surface and they were within like three to 300 kilometers of one of these scarps. So geologically, that's, I guess, three kilometers is really close. Yeah. And out of those 17 that are like close, eight of those are are within 30 kilometers. And so I think that they used... Yeah, they came up with the number 30 kilometers, you know, based on like legit reasoning that i didn't understand but like there was a whole paragraph about like why 30 kilometers is a good way to suggest that that means the moon quake is related to the thrust fault if the epicenter was on the surface and within 30 kilometers of the thrust fault then the two you can confidently say are related okay wow that's awesome
1: i mean some old data from like 40 to 50 years ago a couple snapshots of the moon i mean this data costs billions of dollars to get but uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, take out the old dusty cassette tapes from the Apollo spacecraft, load yeah, them up into MATLAB and see what happens. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I didn't even think about like what was the format of this data originally. I think Buzz Aldrin forgot his thumb drive on Earth <laughs> if I <laughs> yeah. read the reports correctly.
0: Yeah. He had a, an actual notebook where he just drew out like, you know how when an earthquake happens and that little lie detector <laughs> thing
1: is like ch like scribbling on the paper, that was yeah. actually just buzz all the seismograph. That was, yeah, the hardest part of astronaut training is learning how to freeform, freeform yeah. draw earthquake. You just put your ear to the ground, and when you feel any vibrations, you move your arm more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, Galileo, what was it with his gravity experiments? He timed it with his pulse. Is that true? That's crazy. Yeah, he didn't have a stopwatch, it wasn't invented yet. Man, what a what a boss! Yeah, Galileo, man. Well, that's really cool. So Yeah. So did they find anything else interesting other than this very tight correlation, it sounds like?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, right there, they've already proved kind of one of their hypotheses, which is that the moon is tectonically active and more so than we thought that it was. But there was a whole nother kind of part of this that I actually found even more interesting. So they try to like understand why. I mean, we've been talking about the moon's tectonic activity, but we haven't actually talked about why is it still active? Like, what is the activity? That's, yeah,
1: that's a really good question. The elephant in the room.
0: Yeah. So tune in next week to find out. <laughs> Leave it on a cliffhanger. Here. Uh, <laughs> Man, no, so Game of Thrones. I get, ga- <laughs> yeah. Oh my, thank goodness. So I gather what's happening is the moon has like a hot interior, or it had a hot interior, and it's been cooling down over time. And as it cools, it's, I mean, it's kind of like cooling from the outside in. So the inside is still a little bit warm. And That cooling process causes the moon to contract. And so as it's contracting, everything around the surface is all like getting under this compressional stress. And so what these moonquakes are, are a result of that stress. And so as the outer crust of the moon is all kind of like crunching in on itself, it's actually shrinking. And that's what you kind of heard in these different
1: headlines. Oh, okay.
0: That's what they were getting at. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like crumpling up, which is why these thrust faults, you know, are happening. Like the it's sort of splitting, and then it's going to overlap a little bit and cause these weird ridges
1: and and cliffs and mountains and stuff. Almost like with uh, you know, the pictures of the dry desert, the dry desert sand beds as they dry out, you see them start. Yeah, to crack. how it all splits up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, very different mechanism. The moon isn't drying out, but yeah, I don't it's know if that's... like the shrinking of.
0: Yeah, it's more like so. The analogy that they use is it's it's more like a raisin, like a raisin starts as a a grape, and then as it dries oh. out, it shrinks, and you know how okay. the surface gets all like wrinkly and split up and stuff because it's mm-hmm. it's contracting, but you know it still has the same amount of material, so it all has to kind of like crumple a little bit.
1: I will never eat a raisin the same way after that.
0: Yeah, you're gonna have to identify the lobate fault scarps on your next
1: raisin. Yes. Yeah. Raisins just got a little more cosmic. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I was reading somewhere that actually, like Earth's gravity plays an important role in the moon's seismic activity as well. Do they talk about that at all? So that's exactly where I was going with this. Is like, that's what
0: they, that's, that was the sort of second part of this paper, was they wanted to, I mean, they had a hypothesis that you should expect to see these moonquakes at times when this compressional stress from the shrinking is higher i mean it makes sense right
1: yeah yeah it's under more stress and so like it's almost that breaking point
0: yeah and so it turns out that there is a time when the compressional stress is higher and it is related to the earth it's because you know the earth and the moon are tidally locked and they exib- they exert these tidal forces on each other and it has to do well, with so that's why we never see the dark side of the moon right 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 because yeah the gravity is always pulling that side of the moon to be kind of closer to us but even more so, the like you know how the tides will be stronger at one time of the month than they are at a different time of the month? That's because the moon is actually closer to the Earth at some points in its orbit than it is at others. So there's, okay. there's a closest point, which is called perigee, and there's a furthest point, which is called apogee. And the suggestion by these authors is that you would expect there to be higher compressional stresses near apogee. Because the moon is moving slower when it's at apogee. And so there's more time for the stress to build up and for a, like a, one of these really quick probabilistic events to actually happen. Does that make oh. sense? I feel like that's kind of hard to explain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would have expected like that it's when the moon is at perigee and closest to the earth that like the forces would be strongest. But I would I kind of thought that too. But I think what is really going on is just
0: like it's the extremes that matter. So as it's getting closer okay. and further, like the moon is going to have, you know, it's kind of like you're bending a metal joint. Like if you're bending metal, each time you bend it down and then straighten it back out, it's weaker. And then you bend it and straighten it and it's weaker. Do you know what I'm talking and about? And it's the
1: fact that it's, yeah, yeah. Like if you take a paper clip and bend it back exactly. and forth a bunch of times, it's going to break. Right. It's so just the, as it's the, the bending that breaks closer and it. farther and closer and farther.
0: Right, so I think so. I think that as it's getting further, it's also it's also going to be experiencing this sort of tidal force of stress on the surface. But it has more, it has more time at this extreme. So I think like when it's halfway between perigee and apogee, is when this force is the lowest. You know, so it's like coming and going. Oh, but, okay. We'll leave that one to the astrophysicists. <laughs> yeah. So you know, they make this hypothesis, and then. They try and correlate these 28 moonquakes to like what point in the moon's orbit it happened. And there's a really cool mm-hmm. trend. They actually find that most of the moonquakes did occur within 15,000 kilometers of
1: apogee, which in moon terms, that's really close. Okay. Do you know what the distance is between apogee and perigee? So if we're talking like, what is it? The moon's like, is it 30 Earth diameters away? Or eighty. So I think the
0: distance from the Earth to the moon on average is something like 400,000 kilometers. But in actuality, it really varies between like 360,000 to like 405,000, something like that. So there's kind of this, you know, 40,000 kilometer difference between perigee and apogee. And so when they say that it happens within 15,000 kilometers of apogee, what they mean is that it's happening like within less than half of the orbit that corresponds to apogee and there's actually a really neat chart here in this paper where you can actually you know they plot it out in terms of these cycles of being closer to apogee and closer to perigee and you can see that most of the data points happen in the top half of this chart where the apogee is occurring
1: oh okay hey a good infographic yeah
0: i know you're a you're a sucker for the good images james yep always and then there was one last little kind of interesting thing that they noticed on the topic of this sort of like periodicity of the stress getting stronger and weaker. So not only was it more likely to happen near Apogee, but they also, again, if you look at that same figure, these moonquakes are plotted out over time and you can see that they're kind of bunched up uh, like, you know, once every or like twice every year or so. They they're all kind of like happen sort of around the same time. And this periodicity is around 206 days, which corresponds to, like, the sun's perturbations of the moon's orbit. So, the sun, you know, we talk about tidal forces between the Earth and the moon. The sun actually has an effect on these tidal forces as well. It's weaker, and it happens less often than once a month, but there is some sort of, like, lining up that does happen that causes the, the stress to be higher. And they find that the moonquakes also sort Whoa. of— loosely line up with those cycles which is
1: really cool that's awesome it's one of those things where with astronomy and uh like planetary science it's weird because it's like for orbital information we have tons of information but like in situ sensor data we don't have very much but it's neat to see how they were able to accent the limited sparse data that they had actually from the surface of the moon with these r- very rich measurements we have in orbits to make a little more sense out of it
0: Yeah. And I mean, like, it kind of really highlights, you know, now going totally full circle, it highlights how much there is still to know. I mean, like, this is data that we were only able to collect for the eight years that we were ever going to the moon. And like, they're still able to pull this stuff out of the, yeah, like you said, this super sparse array of very limited sensor capabilities. So, I mean, what are we going to find out when we go back and we start putting like really cool science experiments there that are going to be there to stay even longer
1: yeah i mean i think it like dials into one of the really important aspects of research too in that research is basically admitting the fact that we don't know everything like you can't always justify monetarily why we should go to the moon or why we should explore space i mean there's certainly that human drive to explore that i think is very powerful and important but like who knows what we could find it's like it's actually kind of like
0: precisely that we don't know what we're gonna find that we should go find it
1: yeah and yeah who knows like what the seismic information for the moon could tell us about seismic information on the earth like or even just developing this algorithm you know just to explore the moon it forces you to come up with new techniques that like i'm sure will be very useful on earth like Sure, there are seismic areas where it's too costly for people to go and actually lay out sensors. But now with fewer sensors, we can get more data that could potentially save lives.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, like one big area that it's like kind of a hot area of research is volcano prediction. And I think that there are potentially like they're recently learning that there might be this correlation between earthquakes and volcanoes in a way that you could maybe predict. So, I don't know. Maybe that's an application here. Especially because, like, relevant sure, for Seattle. Yeah, especially relevant to us in Seattle. Because, like, surely you can't just throw like hundreds of seismometers all over like Mount Rainier. You know, it's not easy to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they have a lot already. And I'm sure even that is like, they still have no idea when it's going to blow up. Yeah. If it will. Yay. Good for us. Woohoo. Hopefully we graduate before then. Yeah. When that sucks, there's, sucked, there's to not the, get the our eternal PhDs race. Because geological
0: processes versus phd students. Yes. That'll so. be my the final graph in my <laughs> dissertation maybe. Yeah, some comparing the time scales pretty similar.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 400 years. Well, awesome. <laughs> it, were there any other interesting findings from the paper you wanted to throw in or
0: No, I mean that was kind of it. Like I I was super fascinated. Maybe I didn't do it justice, but I was super fascinated by the correlation between the apogee and these moonquakes
1: happening but that wasn't even really the main point of this paper so no that's cool i mean didn't you TA'd a an orbital mechanics class didn't you i did yeah and took one as well it's, it'd be cool to come up with a homework problem related to that like the lunar surface and i don't know yeah i haven't taken orbital mechanics so i don't know if that's relevant
0: but yeah well i think if they ever combine orbital mechanics and
1: geoscience then it'd be a great exam question maybe someday (laughs) um i do just want to throw this in because i was peeking through your notes on this episode perhaps one of the most important findings or results i should say of this paper oreo is releasing glow-in-the-dark marshmallow moon cookies uh in case you didn't know so oh how could i forget
0: yeah we should have led with that (laughs) yeah go pick but actually go pick up your oreo glow-in-the-dark moon cookies celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing.
1: I know where I'm headed right after this. We should get an Oreo sponsorship for this. Yeah.
0: I mean, we joke, but I'm definitely buying like 10 boxes of those.
1: Yeah. They're better for you than eggs, apparently. Right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, everything's
1: better for you than eggs. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, awesome, Charlie. That was was great. It's nice to get some science to accent our uh, popular news influx about the moon.
0: Yeah, I hope that it just I mean like it was interesting for me to read just getting a little bit of context to understand lunar science and like why because yeah, we see this stuff all over the news all the time that we're going to go back and it's going to be in 5 years and it's easy to write off any reason to do that. And uh, you know, I don't think that I think if you're that cynical already, there's no way that this paper about moonquakes is going to convince you otherwise, but like, you know, For me personally, I found this very fascinating and it helped me understand better what the
1: science angle is for continuing to explore the moon. Yeah. I had no idea we even brought seismometers onto the moon with Apollo until like today when you brought this up. Yeah. How do you think that the popular news media has treated these moon topics, lunar topics, I should say, (sighs) at least the ones relevant to the science article?
0: Yeah, so for this article, I won't comment on how they are covering, you know, Lunar Gateway and all that, because I couldn't, you know, possibly keep up with all that coverage. But for this paper, um, not great, to be honest. It was... Really? I mean, yeah, like, the first article I mentioned from Fox News where they said, moon is shrinking, shocking study reveals. I mean, that's just, like, patently false. This study did not reveal that the moon is shrinking. That's been known for, like, decades. And that wasn't even like what this paper was about. So I, I don't know. I mean, it kind of felt a little clickbaity. And it's why I read this. Like I, re- you know, I titled my notes for this, uh, this episode is the moon shrinking because I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to learn all about the, how the moon's shrinking only to find out that that's totally old news. So,
1: yeah, well, that's a bummer. But at least as a paper boy, you got to get into the actual research. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: kind of yeah. it's kind of the perfect, <laughs> the perfect little uh, thing for me. Right. But they did have an interesting quote from. uh nicholas schmer who was one of the authors on this paper and he said for me these findings emphasize that we need to go back to the moon we learned a lot from the apollo missions but they really only scratched the surface so kind of just emphasizing Ooh, what we already intended. discussed here
1: that there's so much more so much more to do yeah maybe we could uh learn something from the what was it Bennu? yeah the asteroid the japanese yeah. one bomb the moon i don't think that would be good but <laughs>
0: well they already did that
1: there was a mission
0: yeah there was a mission that ironically was called smart whose whole thing was to crash it into the moon (laughs)
1: oh wow okay yeah actually i was listening to a cool podcast about the design of the apollo missions and like the plan to crash the spacecraft onto the moon wait like the human spacecraft not the human spacecraft what part of the spacecraft was it they wanted to crash something on Huh, maybe like the booster stage or something that took them out there. Yeah, it must have been the booster stage. And they said they may have actually used that to help calibrate the seismometers. Oh, no way. That's really cool. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Yeah. To get like a known
0: thing crashing in and measuring that. And they would be sensitive enough to like feel that. It's kind of cool. I mean, I gotta imagine there's a lot of energy in that thing smashing into the surface. Yeah, I guess like however many tens of thousands of miles per hour. Yeah. And then, so the National Geographic article was pretty good. We'll, we'll link that one on the website. Uh, there was a good quote from the, the first author, Thomas Waters, kind of just emphasizing like the significance of their, of their findings. He said, the whole idea that a 4.6 billion year old rocky body like the moon has managed to stay hot enough in the interior and produce this network of faults just flies in the face of conventional wisdom.
1: Wow. That sounds like a nice summary of the importance of the paper, at least. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there you have it. I mean, some of these, you know, all these news articles that really focused on the shrinking missed the mark, but uh, most of them were pretty good about focusing on the moonquake aspect. Okay. Well, cool. Thanks so much for bringing that in.
1: Yeah. I hope
0: you learned something. Hope that all the folks at home learned something. Definitely. I feel richer for the experience.
1: <laughs> <Good>. um, <laughs> You're too kind, James. As Charlie mentioned, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to learn more, We'll be posting all of the articles onto the website, including the National Geographic article, as well as the article in Nature Geoscience. If you're on the website as well, don't forget to check out our link to merch. We have new Paperboys podcast t-shirts, sweatshirts, athletic shirts, coffee mugs, tote bags, anything you could imagine putting a Paperboys logo on. Uh, we have it. And the proceeds actually go to helping us fund the website and hosting it as well as the podcast hosting service. So we appreciate it. I think it looks pretty cool, but let us know. Let us know what you think. And the website is paperboyspodcast.com.
0: Definitely go check that out. Also, like James said at the beginning, please, if you like this episode, share it with a friend, post it on Facebook, post it on Twitter. Our handle is at paperboyspod on pretty much any social media that you could find us on. We really appreciate it when people reach out and let us know their thoughts on the show. And more importantly, sharing it with people they know.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Voice. Thanks for listening.